First Samuel chapter two, where we pick up through the week, through the weekend, through the week, midweek service. We are in the Old Testament, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We find ourselves in First uh, Samuel chapter two. We're going to pick up at verse twelve. So you put your finger there. I'll eventually get there. Now, Heavenly Father, as we Open our hearts to your living word tonight, the word sent from heaven to heal us, to save us, to comfort, to to guide us, to instruct us. We pray that your will would be accomplished in our lives and that we would hear what your spirit is saying through this word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, scandals in Christian ministries are hard to hear about regardless of when they occurred, whether it's a few weeks ago or a few thousand years ago, as with our case this evening. Uh, Whenever they occur, they're usually about two things, aren't they? The misappropriation of funds and sexual immorality. That will be the case even tonight. As Solomon wrote some 3,000 years ago, What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. That's in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse 9. So scandals involving sex and money in ministry are a dime a dozen these days. It's certainly nothing new. I had dozens and dozens to choose from for an opening illustration for tonight. And then I reconsidered and I thought, you know what? We've all just finished our dinner. No need to create an unnecessary and unpleasant feelings um, of queasiness. And so if you'd like to go on the internet and discover all of the multitudes of indiscretions committed, you are free to do so. But trust me, there's more than enough to keep you busy for a couple Weeks. Now, tonight, 1 Samuel chapter 2, we'll see really the prototype of the church scandal. 3,100 years ago, uh, men appointed to the Lord's service behaving indecently and sacrilegiously, they will be removed from their positions. Eli is the head priest and the permissive father of the two wicked boys involved, his sons who are also serving as priests there in the tabernacle. They are, in fact, in line to replace their father as high priest. And the sons are abusing their authority and corrupting the ministry. But this isn't really what the story of 1 Samuel is about. It's about godly Samuel, in contrast to, you will see, growing up in between the paragraphs about the two wicked sons, you will be reading about the godly son and his family. Uh, He will grow up to restore morality and decency in the house of the Lord. And he will grow up to introduce us to the very first two kings of Israel, taking us out of the dark days of judges and into the more hopeful days of Israel's monarchy. So allow me to set up the scene before us, starting at verse 12. I'll tell you about what's going on so we can just dive in. We are at the tabernacle, which is a fancy old school word for tent, It's an elaborate complex, as most of you know, 11,000 square feet, 
where the worship of the Lord was taking place. It was parked there temporarily at Shiloh. It housed, of course, the Holy of Holy Place, the Ark of the Covenant, which was considered really the symbolic throne of the Lord God. And so the entire nation really would meet there for all sacrifices, all, all holy days under this temple, uh, tent rather. Uh, it will soon become the temple. So here at the tabernacle, godly Hannah has just dropped off her boy, Samuel, and left him in the care of the ministry team under Eli there at the worship community. Now you'll recall that she was sterile. She prayed for a boy to give back to the Lord for the service of the Lord and ministry all the days of his life. And she's now kept up her end of the deal. So her, she and her godly husband have just now said goodbye to little Samuel, left him with Eli. Eli is the head priest. He's the permissive father I told you about. And there are two boys, the wicked young men who would be his successors also serve. So they're waving goodbye and the story picks up in verse 12. Eli, the high priest, sons were wicked men. They had no regard for the Lord. Now it was the practice of the priests with the people that whenever anyone offered a sacrifice and while the meat was being boiled, the servant of the priest would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand. He would plunge it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and the priest would take for himself whatever the fork brought up. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned, the servant of the priest would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, only raw. If the man said to him, um, let the fat be burned up first unto the Lord, that's, I've added unto the Lord, because that's where the fat was burned up for, and then take whatever you want. The servant would then answer, no, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll break your kneecaps. <laughs> Sorry. That's in the Hebrew. It's very hard to find because it's not really there. I'll take it by force. Verse 17. This sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. So let's pause there. Roman numeral number one, misappropriation of funds. So we're introduced to the two scoundrels, Eli's unbelieving sons and their scandalous behavior. The indictment there is there for you in verse 17. They treated the Lord's offering with contempt. In other words, they're mishandling church monies. In other words, more simpler than that, they're stealing from the offering. Now let's take a closer look. The sad reality that though these boys were raised in the church, in a church environment, literally the church, in a ministry home, they had knowledge and privilege, but uh, they also have free will. And so their hearts managed to not become soft to the Lord. They did not become Christians in our sense of understanding this passage. They were not believers in Yahweh. Now, the description here 
of them leaves nothing to the imagination. Verse 12 tells you that the sons were wicked. In the Hebrew, it says sons of Belial. Now, you often hear that in 1 Corinthians, get pronounced Belial. That's the incorrect way to say it is Belial. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 6.15, Paul uh, uses that term. It's a pagan god of the Old Testament, but he uses it uh, as a synonym of Satan. And so the boys are called, are connected with the evil one. And uh, it's an idiom really that means sons of worthlessness those who openly practice lawlessness. And, and it's used to describe uh, folks in Deuteronomy 13 and Judges uh, 19, if you're interested in looking that up. Really calling somebody who is lawless a worthless person, is that that's how the Bible sees them. I think it's very apt description. When you are disconnected from the source of life, and rebelling against the one who created you and the planet and the one you will stand before. The Lord Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 26, what good is it for a man or a woman to gain the whole world and forfeit their own soul? What a worthless existence, no matter what it outwardly looked like. These two boys were worthless because they didn't find their meaning in the Lord who created them. Now, the root, of course, is in that verse. It states they did not know the Lord uh, or, or they had no regard for God, no fear of the Lord. Now, that's a big problem since they'll succeed uh, Eli and, and represent the Lord. So this is a big problem to try to do ministry when you yourself have no regard for the Lord uh, you're representing, supposedly. So now Eli has his faults, as we see, but, um, you, you know, he knew the Lord. Uh, he's not a very good father, uh, but he does okay with Samuel, apparently. So... Uh, commentators say children raised in ministry homes have free will like everyone else. They, they can't come to know the Lord based on osmosis because they grew up around him. Uh, a knowledge of Jesus Christ isn't passed on genetically. It's just like, uh, yeah, you know how folks tell you when you say, are you a Christian? They'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my mom is a Christian. She's really devoted. And well, I'm not asking about mom, you know, I'm happy for mom, but I am asking about you and not your Aunt Martha, which everybody loves to tell us about. Let me tell you about my Aunt Martha. Well, how about you? Because when you stand before God, he's not going to ask about Aunt Martha to you. He's going to ask you about you, you know, and so the, these boys could say, hey, my dad knew you, but... They have a problem here. David Guzik on this verse, it can be a difficult thing for a child to come to a true, genuine knowledge of the Lord when they have grown up in a Christian home. They just kind of assume they know the Lord because mom and dad do. But young people need to have a passionate connection and commitment to knowing the Lord for themselves. 
And knowing about the Lord isn't the same. It isn't enough. We must know him personally ourselves, for that is what constitutes salvation, personal relationship. And so the boy's lawlessness manifests first here in your text as uh, greed, stealing from the offerings. Here's what's going on because it doesn't make sense to our ears, so let me explain about how they did offerings. Uh, the offering that you brought to the temple basically was divided into three, uh, divided three ways. Number one, the Lord got a portion. So if you brought some meat, uh, it was for the communal uh, festivities, and everybody was going to share this meal, including the Lord. And so you, you gave a portion to the Lord, you gave a portion to the priest, and a portion was kept by the worshiper. That's their offering, all right? Now, first things first, the fatty portions of the meat belonged to the Lord. It was considered the most flavorful and the most luxuriant. And so they would say, hey, the fat goes burned off and rendered, either boiled or rendered in some way. That's for the Lord. And symbolically, as it's rendered away, the Lord is enjoying a meal with all of us, kind of like the Lord's Supper, in the sense that we're right with God now. The animal's been slain. Our sins have been atoned for. Now we're going to eat together. We're going to hang out with the Lord. Everything's cool. And so the, the fatty portions were offered to the Lord first, but you'll notice that that's not being done here. Why? Because the boys want the most flavorable parts. They want what God was being offered. And so that's the first problem. The priest was supposed to get, according to law, uh, the right shoulder in the breast portions, but they're not content with that. So here's what they come up with, a little game, and they were doing this for years and years and years. The three-pronged fork that goes in to the cauldron, and whatever we pull up is going to be ours, but it was part of the worshipers. That was the worshipers' portion. And so whatever they pulled up and ripped off for themselves, they could say, you know, in addition to the right uh, shoulder and the breast portion, we want a little bit more. And so we're going to play this little uh, claw crane arcade game. <laughs> All right. You know, the arcade game where it just drops down and then you're just hoping that it gets one of those big fat toys so that you can come home a winner and show your kid what you pulled up. This is what they're doing, but they're pulling up some, some guy's offering to the Lord, and it was supposed to be. And then Hophni and Phinehas says, oh, don't even give us boiled meat. We want it raw for two reasons. One, we don't like boiled meat, and we want to roast it. It doesn't matter how God prescribed it to be done. We want it our way. Give it to us, not boiled, Give it to us raw because, secondly, we can go out and sell it and pocket the money for ourselves. So we want it raw. We don't want it cooked, all right? Well, it gets even better than that. Now, if they pull it up and the guy said, hey, wait a second. The fatty portions haven't been rendered to the Lord yet. They would say, excuse us. Do we need to take this by force? You want us to wrestle you to the ground for it? Because we will. And it wasn't Hophni or Phineas doing that. It was their assistants. Of course, they don't want to do the dirty work themselves. So they had the assistants over at the tithe boxes. Is that 
Seriously? You have a little uh, proof of that? Maybe we can see uh, some paid stubs? And if not, you know what? You coming in here with nothing? They're threatening them. They're manipulating them. They're intimidating them. Just like you see every week on television, only it's all done so subtly. Hophni and Phineas are on network television all the time. It's a sad thing, too, because God appointed that those who served in the ministry were well taken care of. Paul the Apostle said, hey, the Lord, in the same way that the men were well taken care of in the tabernacle and temple, he, he has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living through the gospel. It's too bad that they weren't just content. They had to covet. They couldn't be godly. They had to be greedy. And you know what, folks, let me say this. Of all the ways to try to get rich, of all the ways in the whole wide world that you could try to get your own private jet and your little uh, vacation homes all over the world, of all the ways to get those extra funds, to steal it from the church, from, wor from worshipers who said, this is the money unto the Lord to, to sustain the work of the gospel in this place and to spread the gospel all over the earth. And with that money, to help yourself into that, to become rich. That's bad. I don't know what else to say about it. <laughs> I'm not very eloquent, but that's bad. Verses 18 through 21. But Samuel was ministering before the Lord. So now we're going to go back and forth. Bad, good, bad, good, all right? Uh, but Samuel's ministering before the Lord. He's a boy wearing a linen ephod. And I'll tell you about that later. Verse 19, each year's mama made him a little robe and took it to him when she went up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. Eli would bless Elkanah is the husband, Samuel's father, and his wife, saying, may the Lord give you children by this woman to take the place of the one she prayed for and gave to the Lord. Then they would go home, and the Lord was gracious to Hannah. She conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. So number two, then, the deliberate contrast between the purity and service of Samuel and his family contrasted to the character of Eli's sons. Now, a couple sweet insights here. Number one, God's work will always go on. Um, corrupt men cannot stop or hinder the work of the Lord, though it may appear so. God guides Samuel into position since Eli's sons are not worthy. God raises up somebody who will be. God always has a plan, always. I was at a church years and years and years ago, a tiny little church. It was growing. It was very healthy. There was a young, very talented, gifted, young, hip pastor, very gifted speaker and musician and singer. And then he fell into immorality. The most unassuming, older man that you'd ever 
wanna meet took his place. You went from young, cool, hip, attractive, well-spoken and gifted to this old guy, disheveled, uh, couldn't really put it all together. And the church flourished. <laughs> it worked. God doesn't need any man to do anything. And when, if the, when the man says, you know what, I'm out of here. I'm going to do my own thing. God says, you know what, I got somebody right here. I'm going to raise up. Go ahead and do your thing because I'm right here. My work doesn't stop and fall on account of some man. God always has a backup plan. And that, that backup plan may have been the plan that he had to begin with. That may have been A, actually. And so... Uh, the second thing I see here is you're never too young to serve the Lord. Listen, look at this boy. He's a boy. He's wearing, let me show you, the ephod. They've got a little mini version for him. All right? He's the cutest little thing, but he's not just a kid playing dress up. The Bible says he was, and the Bible says he was ministering before the Lord. He's a grade school kid. Now that's what Eli would wear. And then you have this little boy running around without a mom and dad. Eli's the surrogate father and some of the ladies who work at the tabernacle. They're taking care of this little kid. Thank you for that. Uh, you know, and then there's so much elaborate meaning behind that. But my point is this. What was he doing? He's lighting candles. He was opening doors. He was taking things out and putting them away. He was being helpful. He was learning music. He was a blessing. You know, we just think he's just a kid. So he's helping out. He's like, you know, my kids grew up, uh, come first, they were the first people in the church at all in the morning. And they would come and they would set up the chairs. They were ministering before the Lord. They, they were doing a lot of work, setting up for years and years and years and tearing down. And in all kinds of ways, as kids, as many of your kids have, and sometimes we just think, well, the kids. And the Lord says, they are ministering to me. Do not keep the children from coming to me, Jesus said. And so Hannah's a good mama. We see her making robes, outer robes, warm clothes. He's always growing, so every year she makes another robe for him. And it's just a beautiful touch. Somebody who saw that, an eyewitness, would, would put that in the text. And then verse 20 uh, Eli's so pleased with Samuel, it's like, oh, we love this kid, you know, and, and may the Lord replace him with a big family, and she gets what she's looking for. God will be a debtor to no one. You can't outgive the Lord. So she loses Samuel, but she gains a family with three boys and two girls. Matthew 19, 29, Jesus, the Son of God, speaking. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. God always has a way of paying us back. One commentator ended this section by saying, why was Samuel godly and Eli's sons were not? It may be easy to say it was because Samuel grew up in a godly home and Eli's didn't. 
but Eli doesn't seem to be a particularly bad parent, although he's got some real big problems, as the rest of the chapter is going to tell you about. No, it would be wrong to give Eli all the blame for his sons or to give Hannah all the credit for Samuel. There is a significant measure that after all the parenting is done, it's left up to the free will of the child. Some of you were not in the Lord during your parenting years. You were dead in your sins and transgressions. You did the best you can. It's done. God doesn't hold us accountable for anything that happened before we came into the knowledge of the truth. Some of you were in the Lord with mitigating circumstances. You were a single parent or going through a divorce. You did the best you can. Some of you knew the Lord, but you made a lot of mistakes parenting not your strong suit. You know what we do? We confess our sins, we learn and grow, we trust the Lord, and we move forward. It's a new day today. We can start again today. Plus, you know, that's why we spoil our grandchildren, right? Because <laughs> we're getting a second shot at it. And I don't mean spoil, of course. Uh, back to the bad boys and their misdeeds. Verse 22 through 26, now Eli, who is very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. That's another word for tabernacle. So he said to them, why do you do such things? I hear from all the people, all these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, it's not a good report that I hear spreading among the Lord's people. Oh, if a man sins against another man, God may mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. You know, <laughs> that's bad. <laughs> I couldn't think of another thing to say. Verse 26, and the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with men. Well, seriously, think about it. When the Lord has determined to put somebody to death, that is not a good thing. Now, Roman numeral number three, what's going to talk about that? The second indictment. So we've already seen the money, the greed, the misappropriation of funds, and often they go hand in hand with another sin, promiscuity, sexual immorality. The two greatest spiritual assassins of the souls of men and women, I'm gonna repeat that, the two greatest hitmen who will kill you, kill and ruin your entire life, there are two, money and sex. Money, 1 Timothy 6.10. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Sex, Proverbs, 20, uh, Proverbs verse 26 of chapter 7. Many are the victims sexual lust has brought down. Her slain are a mighty throng. Now, it's a shame because money and sex are neutral. In fact, both can be blessings when used the way God has uh, designed them to be used. 
But isn't it Satan's biggest strategy to take what is good and what is necessary and what is enjoyment in life and get you to go after something good in the wrong way? That's his biggest game, isn't it? So dad's old and weak, and so is his rebuke, verses 23 to 25. It's well-intentioned, but a little late and without any real discipline. He's, he's all bark and no bite. He hears about it, but will he do anything about it? He's no condition to be the kind of leader Israel needed and a high priest. So his sons were stealing from the tithe boxes and seducing the volunteer female workers. So dad's rebuke is, why are you doing such things? My first reaction is, you're asking why? Seriously? Why are you doing this? Who cares why? And, and what would be the answer, dad? The answer is, you know what? Despite our knowledge, dad, about the Lord, we're heathen unbelievers, okay? Uh, we have zero fear of God. Uh, we're driven by our animal passions for greed and immorality. And all that matters is what we get and when we get it and what we crave. That's why, dad. What he meant probably is how could you, right? Do you feel this pain, though? A foolish son brings grief to his father and bitterness to the one who bore him, Proverbs 17, 25. We find out later that God holds Eli partially responsible for being permissive, for letting it go on, for failure to restrain them. You know what? Maybe he got a hold of Dr. Spock's book, um, How to Be Your your kid's friend, you know, uh, we don't want to uh, cause them any discomfort in life. And so here's my thoughts on this matter. It would have been more respectable and far better for the boys to realize, okay, we're not interested in serving the Lord, even though we grew up doing it. We're not believers and we're not interested in living the Christian life. So let's step down. That's sad but smarter than what Phineas and Hophni did. Now, since this did not happen, Eli's not just dad, he's high priest, and he needed to remove his boys to protect the ministry and, and the worshipers from his misguided sons. But they are going, these boys are going to find out that while dad lacked the gumption to discipline them, God did not. Now, I do like the point Eli makes, dad makes to his boys in verse 25. And here's the gist of it. Let me rephrase it. He's saying, okay, you guys, if you, you, you steal from another person, you, you can have a lawyer to defend you, your defense lawyer, right? But what if you steal from your defense attorney? Then, then what do you do? Then what? See, he, that's what he's saying there. Uh, fortunately, 1 John 2, 1 answers Eli's question, if anyone does sin against God, we have somebody, an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. We know someone that Eli could not see. 
Verse 25, unfortunately, Eli's counsel falls on deaf ears. Can you see the two boys? Dad, you've been whining to us, same old lecture. You never do anything. You just talk, talk, talk. Rolling their eyes, laughing, snickering, and of course, it falls on deaf ears. Their glazed look, rolling their eyes. And then it says this troubling verse. They didn't listen because God had already determined that justice would prevail. He had two lightning bolts with their names already labeled on each one. Now, if you've got a problem with that, you can talk to the Lord about it because you have an appointment. So when you see him, you can say, what's up with killing these kids, you know? Um, I don't personally think you will ask him that question when you see him because you know what? These boys deserve that. These boys are in God's name stealing from the offering and seducing the children's ministry workers. The Lord has given them an opportunity. And he said, you know what? I'm going to give you over to this. Thy will be done. I'm going to bless this. I'm going to bless the track you're on. <laughs> Let me read this quote. Now, when God is seen hardening a heart like Pharaoh's, it's because the person like Pharaoh is insisting on making that choice. And when God is seen giving a person over to something or predetermining the outcome, it's not about the Lord preventing repentance so much as it is highlighting the fact that no one, including those who oppose him, can full, pull a fast one on God. He's way ahead of the game, and he'll use even an unrepented heart for his own purposes. So be careful what you wish for. Let's finish up. The Lord lets Eli have it now. Verses 27 to the end of the chapter, and then we'll be done. Now a man of God came to Eli and said to him, this is what the Lord says. Did I not clearly reveal myself to your father's house? That's Aaron many years ago. When they were in Egypt under Pharaoh, I chose your father out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar to burn incense and to wear an ephod in my presence I also gave your father's house all the offerings made with fire by the Israelites. Why do you then scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling? Why do you honor your sons more than me by fattening yourselves, Eli included, on the choice parts of every offering made by my people, Israel? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and your father's house would minister before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. Those who honor me, I will honor. But those who despise me will be disdained. The time is coming when I will cut short your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your family line and you will see distress in my dwelling. Although good will be done to Israel, in your family line, there will never be an old man. Every one of you that I do not cut off from my altar will be spared only to blind your eyes with tears and to grieve your heart. 
and all your descendants will die in the prime of life. And what happens to your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, will be assigned to you. They will both die on the same day. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish his house and he will minister before me, my anointed one always. Then everyone left in your family line will come and bow down before him for a piece of silver and a crust of bread and plead, appoint me to some priestly office so I can have some food to eat. Well, last point. Eli is charged as an accessory. Now, here's a definition of accessory from a legal point of view. Contributing to or aiding in the commission of a crime. One who, without being present at the actual crime, becomes guilty of such offense, not as the chief actor, but as a participant through their consent, command, advice, instigation, or concealment either before or after the fact. Here's my version of that long-winded definition. If you could have stopped it and didn't, you share part of the blame. That's an accessory. Now, we wouldn't be having this conversation, and this chapter two would be quite a bit shorter, and quite possibly the boys' lives would be quite a lot longer if he hadn't been an accessory. So what he's done is very serious. Let's pull out a few of the nuggets here. The anonymous man of God, it's used 70 times man of God in the Old Testament as a prophet or spokesperson who usually says, thus says the Lord, and then in first person delivers a message from the Lord. Uh, he has three points, past, present, and future. It's very simple. The Lord starts out with the past. He says, let's, let's start at the beginning with Aaron a couple hundred years ago or so. He said, this isn't from a lack of knowledge or, or that you have been mistreated or neglected because let's go back to the beginning because I chose your, your relative who you're related to. He's re Eli is related to Aaron's fourth son. So Aaron had a bunch of sons and Eli qualifies because he can trace back to Aaron through his fourth boy. He says, wasn't that cool that uh, out of everybody, you get to wear the robe, you get to be on the platform, you get to, to manage my people and offer the sacrifice, and all of Israel looks to your, your family, and every time they hear, oh, son of Aaron, everybody goes, oh, wow, that is so cool. You're in the ministry, you're honored by God, God just goes through it, you offer sacrifices, you're, you're chosen by God out of all of those people. You burn incense on the golden altar. You wear those sacred garments. You share in the Lord's offering. Wow. And who does the New Testament call royal priests? Every believer. So the point here is, wow, with privilege and honor comes a call to walk worthy. Philippians, or was it? It's Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have. Well, what calling is that? You Christians are chosen before the foundation of the world in love. He chose you out of the world. He already determined before the world was spinning that you would know him. He picked you. 
Number two, God's kindness led you to repentance. You received a full pardon, sprinkled clean by God's own son, his blood. Full adoption as dearly loved children. You call God Abba, Papa God. You have access to the throne of God 24-7. Not to come in like as a petitioner, but to come in boldly with confidence as a dearly loved child. He says, ask that your joy may be complete. He's given you gifts, abilities, provision, heaven, ruling and reigning with Christ forever and ever. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. Now, you're going to steal from the offering? You're going to cheat on your taxes? You're going to tell lies? You're going to look at porn? Serious? You're going to commit adultery after this? That's what he's saying. And you all have just felt that, so I can move on. <laughs> he goes from past to present. He says, here's what you're doing. I've got two problems with you, Eli. Number one, you put your sons before me. Now, you let them steal the offerings. You let them sleep with the ladies in the church. You knew about it. You let them stumble the worshipers. You misrepresented me by allowing that to happen. You wanted their acceptance more than mine. You were so afraid to upset your boys. It would have been better for you to be afraid to upset me than your kids and to idolize them. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said, anyone who loves his father or mother were uh, more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That is a hard one for all of us. Yeah, you may not worry about, you know, the house or the cars or the jewels, but oh man, little Johnny Jr. God gave you little Johnny Jr. And God's the one who created you and died for you. He is your Lord, and, and little Johnny Jr. can't get in the way of that. And so, Dad, you needed to do something. And issue number two, he says it's even sadder. We find out a little bit more information about Eli. He says, why do you treat the offerings with contempt? Why do you fatten yourselves, Eli? So here's what he's doing. The boys are doing the deed. He rolls his eyes and says, boys, you shouldn't be doing that. Pass that over here. You're going to eat all of that yourself? Well, dad, you're going to have to go out and get yourself new priests. You're going to have to take this up with the board. You're going to have to uh, be embarrassed in front of the, all of Israel. Oh, we, you know, we got to do things differently now. And who's going to recook this? It's already done. So he eats it. And he lets it go on because he's benefiting from it. And it's be too inconvenient for him to do something about it. You know, when he dies in two more chapters, the Philistines are going to come in and I'll tell you the whole story. But he's leaning back on a chair and guess what the Bible says about him? He's heavy. It's the word for heavy. <laughs> It's fat. He says he's fat. How did he get fat? Right here. He says, 
to Eli, why did you fatten yourself on the Lord's offerings, Eli? So future, he says, it's not so bright for you guys. When you poke your finger in God's eye, things don't look good for you. So the short story is Eli's family is eventually fired. Now, if you're, if you're really a good Bible student, you care about what I'm about to say. Eli's descendants, um, he comes from Aaron's fourth boy, right? So after Samuel comes in, Eli's other sons in Eli's line are going to continue to be high priests until Solomon's day. And Solomon is going to replace one of Eli's descendants with Zadok, a descendant from Aaron's third son. So now that line's finished off. So it comes to pass in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 27, it says, So Solomon removed Abiathar from being priest to the Lord, that he might fulfill the word of the Lord, which he spoke concerning the house of Eli at Shiloh. You see, so it comes to pass there in 1 Kings. So what does he say? He says, listen, buddy, bad things. You're two boys. Justice will prevail. They're going to be taken out, literally. And then uh, your line. It's not God cursing his line. It's God saying, you pass corruption from one generation to the next. God's not predetermining a curse on a generation to generation thing. He never does that. He's just saying, when a father is like that, the son is like that, the son is like that, the father's like that, the father's like that, the son's like that, and it goes on and on and on. And if somebody doesn't break the cycle, you're going to end up like that. Same thing happened with Ham, who showed disrespect uh, for his father when he found him drunk and asleep without his jammies on. He goes in and tells everybody about it. And the two other boys bring a blanket and walk in backwards and cover up their dad. And then when Noah wakes up, Noah says, curse thee him and his descendants. But God isn't saying, oh, because you did this, now I'm going to curse all of these people and take away their free will and predetermined chaos and terrible things. Uh-uh. He's saying, watch out when you're an alcoholic, because guess what's going to happen? You're going to have a kid who's going to become an alcoholic. And it just goes on and on and on. How many alcoholics can you see down a line? It's not because God said, oh, you know what? Because you're an alcoholic, I'll make all your descendants alcoholics too. He's saying, because of your sin, you're going to affect a generation of people. Oh, it's just me. I'm not hurting anybody. Yeah. Maybe that's what he's thinking. I'm just eating a little steak here. So I shouldn't be eating this, but what's a guy supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? Fire my two boys? Yes, you were. He ends on a good note. He says, you know, I got the perfect guy. He says, I do have a man in mind. And, and that gets fulfilled several ways. Samuel, the immediate one, is going to take his place. Number two, Zadok, the guy in 1 Kings, will fulfill this, like I just told you about. And then Jesus Christ, he is the high priest everybody's waiting for. 
And not only is this high priest going to uh, make sure that we're all forgiven and stand right before God, he's going to change the nature of our hearts and make us right forever so that we don't have to need, we won't be needing an earthly high priest or pastor. We'll be changed forever and in his presence complete. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this sobering story. Father, we, uh, you were speaking to me and convicting me through this message. And at, at several points, Father, we're all listening. We want to be better parents. We want to be better stewards of the calling of grace of God that you've given us. We all have fallen short. We ask, Father, that you'd encourage our hearts as we determine to turn from our own ways and allow you to help us to walk in manners worthy of our calling in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.